looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, George. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week is no exception. And I'd like to welcome everybody to episode 57 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. We've got another amazing episode ready for you. What? Another amazing episode? Yes! We have decided to continue the amazingness of each and every episode. We're going to keep upping the amazingness week after week because that's what you've come to expect from Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. This week, I have an amazing interview with author Steve Stolier. That's right. Steve wrote the book Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House. Steve was a huge Groucho Marx fan. He saved the movie Animal Crackers. We'll talk all about that later. He lived and worked for Groucho Marx in the final years of his life. And he's got amazing stories to tell about Groucho and all the people that just happen to swing by Groucho's house. You won't even believe the who's who of house guests that Steve witnessed. And it's all coming up in just a few minutes. I have such exciting news to share with all of you. Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show has a series of TED Talks that are now available for everyone free of charge to listen to. Do you love TED Talks? Well, you've come to the right place because we've got the best TEDs talking in the business. That's right. Where else can you hear Ted Alexandro? Ted Neely, Ted Lange. That's right. All the best Teds, and they're all at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. Go to jeffisfunny.com, search Ted, and you'll find Ted Alexandro, episode 54, Ted Neely, episode 48, Ted Lange, episode 52. If you're looking for an amazing Ted talking, you've come to the right place. Check them all out. And also, while you're at jeffisfunny.com, check out all the other great episodes we have. And also, sign up for my mailing list. I send out a weekly email every week. You do not want to miss it. Full of gems. Many gems. Check it out. jeffisfunny.com. I do want to thank everyone who subscribes, follows, likes the podcast on their favorite podcast app, whether it be CastBox, Apple, Google, iHeart, Amazon, Music, Good Pods, you know, Podchaser, Listener Notes, wherever you listen, I'm thankful. Make sure to hit subscribe, like, follow, whatever that app or site uses, whatever lingo the kids are using on that site that day. So do that. Also, tell all your friends about the podcast. That's how we grow. I really appreciate it. Also, follow me on social media, at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Instagram and Twitter. I love hearing from you. Tweet at me. I'll retweet it. As long as you're kind. <laughs> but yeah, but seriously, tweet, tweet at me. I love hearing from folks after the episodes. It gives me great joy. You know what else gives me great joy? My live show, Crossing the Streams, every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's live on Facebook and YouTube. 
I do retweet the live feed at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter. You can watch it live there as well. We talk about great shows and movies you should be streaming. And we do it weekly. I do it with my buddies. And we usually have a guest. And it's tons of fun. Last week, we talked about the Kaminsky Method and Hacks and a bunch of other shows. So check that out. Follow along. That's a hoot. You'll love it. Oh, I also want to do a huge shout out to Fred Carroll for the launch of Apostrophe Magazine. It's an indie magazine focused on indie authors and indie podcasters. I'm honored to be featured on the cover with other great podcasters and authors and also have an article that I'll be doing weekly in the magazine. I'll put a link to Apostrophe Magazine in the show notes. I also want to do a shout out to my buddy J. Chris Newberg. You loved him in episode 49 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. Now you can love me on his podcast. Heroin has a great publicist. We had a ton of fun catching up again, so check that out. You can find a direct link to that on my YouTube channel. Just search Jeff DeWaskin Show on YouTube. And now it's time for the social media tip. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. This is the part of the show where I drop some social knowledge on ya. I hang out on social media way too long, and when I learn stuff or see things that can help you, I like to share them right here during this segment of the show. So here's one tip on making your tweets the tweetiest. It's great to use a GIF or photo or image with your tweets, but don't make the tweet reliant on the image. The image should be a supplement to the copy, meaning the text you tweet should be able to stand alone without the image. The image should just give it a little extra oomph or boost, but should be able to stand on its own. You'll notice at the end of every episode when I read tweets from one of the trending hashtags from hashtag roundup, the tweets I read, none of them are reliant on the image for me to convey the hilarity of the tweet to you in this audio fashion. So that's what you should kind to shoot for. It makes for better writing and ultimately it'll always be more humorous and more shareable because it'll be more original. And that's the social media tip. I do want to take a moment to thank everyone for supporting the sponsors week after week after week. I can't thank you enough for supporting the sponsors. It's how we keep the lights on here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Jawaskin Show. When you reach out to them, they hear it, they see it, they keep coming back. And that allows me to keep giving you all this free entertainment. That's right, free. Ladies and gentlemen, free. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the guy you just walked by at the supermarket. Live from Detroit, the Jeff Jawaskin Show is free because I support his sponsors. So thank you to everyone. This week, we've got the answer to everyone who's vaccinated but still wants to wear a mask because you've gotten used to not being recognized when you're out. This week's sponsor, Groucho Marx Glasses. That's right, Groucho Marx Glasses. The perfect way to go in the public, not wear a mask, but still have no one recognize you. That's right. Now you two can hide behind a pair of fuzzy eyebrows, a fake nose, and a fake mustache. Walking in any restaurant or supermarket with your Groucho Marx glasses proudly on. And it's guaranteed people will still stay six feet away from you. And you can have some fun with it too. Walk into Sam's Club and just look at the guy and say, I refuse to join a club that would have me as a member. Then laugh and leave. 
Make your way into a synagogue. Tap the rabbi on the shoulder, step into his place, and say to the bride and groom, marriage is a wonderful institution, but who wants to live in an institution? Ha <laughs> ha! That's right. With your Groucho Marx glasses on, no one will know who you are, and you can have the most fun you've ever had. So grab a pair today. You're vaccinated, and you deserve it. All right. That's awesome. Well, I don't want to wear a mask anymore because I'm vaccinated and I don't have to in most places, I do love the idea of not being seen or people not knowing who I am. And this is the perfect way. I've already pre-ordered 15 pairs, and I'm looking forward to my next outing. Well, I think that's the perfect segue to my interview with author Steve Stolier. He happened to live with Groucho Marx for many years, wrote a book about it, raised eyebrows. Steve also wrote on many, many, many TV shows. We talk about it all, and it's coming up right now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm happy to have writer, author, actor Steve Stolier with me today. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Doing great. Can't complain. Oh, come on. Even with a little, <laughs> with a little pride. Okay, I can complain. I can complain a little bit. Yeah. There you go. It's 106 degrees here. I can complain. Well, now that we've discussed the weather... I guess there's nothing much left to discuss. So take care and thanks for having me on. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. That was Steve Stolier. All right. Okay. Well, you have done. You have done so much. I don't even know where to start because I remember when uh, I was introduced to you. He's like, "Oh, Steve wrote this amazing book, and he lived with." Groucho Marx, and I was like, but then as I started to dive into all the other stuff you've done, that that's just like one piece of it. You've got this amazing writing career. I guess I wanted, you know, you wrote on, well, you got Simon and Simon, Murder, She Wrote, the new WKRP, Sliders. I mean, like, Dave, you wrote for Dick Cavett. I did, and he wrote back. <laughs> so I mean, question number one is, yes. was the time you spent with Groucho, did that help you into this amazing writing career, or are they completely kind of separate from each other? I think it did. I think, I mean, in the sense that we were kindred spirits, and he turned me on to the whole Algonquin roundtable, all the wits of the 20s and 30s, Robert Benchley and Dorothy Parker and George S. Kaufman. I always had a knack for writing. I remember getting a blue ribbon in junior high for some short story I wrote, and I tended to have a, sen a quick sense of humor, at least back then. When I got the job working for Groucho, I was a history major because I've always had a passion for archaeology and paleontology and history. And I didn't really think you could make a career of show business or being funny or writing, that sort of thing. But being immersed in his household was so stimulating. I worked for him the last three years of his life. And in that time, got to spend, obviously, quality time with my hero, but also people who wrote for his films, Maury Riskind and Nat Perrin and S.J. Perelman, the New Yorker humorist, and people in front of and behind the cameras. And it really pushed me towards that as a career. And I shifted at UCLA, I shifted my major from history to motion picture television. But even a diploma didn't guarantee me even a discount at the theaters. So I went from Groucho's to working in the steno pool at Universal from 11 to 8, typing 
Kojaks and Columbos and Rockford Files and uh, all those great 70s shows. And I, as I would read the scripts, I would think, you know, these aren't all that fabulous. You don't really have to be George Kaufman to sell something in this town. I became friendly with Dick Cavett through my connection to Groucho. I used to send him letters about what, the intrigue that was going on inside Groucho's house. He took a liking to me. Again, we were kind of kindred spirits, grew up in the Midwest, and both of our mothers died when we were young, and we were shy around girls, and loved all the classic comedians of the 30s and 40s. And then when Groucho died in 77, I figured, well, that's probably it for my connection to Cavett. He's one of these Yale, New York snobs, and I'm just this kid from St. Louis that grew up in the Valley. When Groucho died, Cavett called me up and said, listen, just because he's gone, I hope we're not going to lose touch. And by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've shown some of your letters to Woody, and he says they're very well written. So I had to empty the urine out of my shoes. Uh, <laughs> the idea that Cavett was calling me saying, hey, let's don't lose touch just because Groucho's gone, and that he'd been sharing me with Mr. Allen. And it was Cavett who gave me my first break getting away from being a secretary typist at Universal and going to New York to write for him at HBO. When you say you were a typist at Universal, what does, that, what does that mean exactly? What does that mean? That means I sat at a Selectric 2 and typed script after script that came into the steno pool. And then after a couple of years, I became a production secretary for a producer and worked on BJ and the Bear and uh, Harper Valley, some other shows. And then I got this call to be a writer, and it meant moving to New York and working at HBO and Time Life Building and Rockefeller Center. And it was just this quantum leap from, you know, I left LAX, a secretary, and touched down at JFK, this writer from Los Angeles that Dick Cavett wants to have on the show. That's amazing. And that's how it started. And, my, you know, I spent two and a half years in New York and would love to have stayed there. But work dried up, and then I got an offer to come back to L.A. and very reluctantly, I mean, I just couldn't turn it down because it was a bunch of money at a time when it, money was scarce in New York. So I rolled back into California. But the years I spent in, in Manhattan were just magical. I only wish there had been more of them. So when I came back here, I was uh, now I was the writer from New York <laughs> back in Los Angeles and managed to get different freelance writing jobs mostly through connections, but then those led to people that I'd never met before. Well, let me ask you a question about yeah. um, writing for TV shows. Sure. And I'm definitely going to get back to the Groucho Marx, so That's don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to circle back. So when you're when you're writing for like the new WKRP or Simon Simon, where you're writing, I'm going by your IMDb, so if this sure. isn't right, no, where I'm accurate. writing, okay, so where you write two episodes of WKRP, right? How do you just write two? I mean, were you part of a team or no, do they bring you in? And not, like, how does I, that work? I was only on a couple of shows briefly on staff. For the most part, I was a freelancer. So you would, at least in those days, now it's pretty insulated and most episodes of shows are generated by the staff and it's much even harder than it was when I was doing it to make a sale. But you would get, familiarize yourself with the show and then you would, I would sit down with a legal pad 
and start coming up with ideas. A series of robberies in the neighborhood cast suspicion on this and so on and so on. And I would work them up, uh, not in too much detail, because the more detail you put in, the less flexibility there is. And then you're locked in if they say, well, couldn't it be in Sweden or in the 17th century? And then you go, well, then the Maserati scene is out. Anyway, and you go in and you pitch the stories and you watch them look at their watch, take phone calls and say, no, 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 go on. If you're lucky, one of the ideas sparks their interest and they send you home to flesh it out a little bit. So then you think in terms of a story with a beginning, middle and an end. Again, you still don't write anything that's more than a a couple pages just to give them a sense of what the show would be. And then you go in and is that sort of what they're looking at? And because of the Writers Guild, you're protected against them saying, no, go home and make it blue. No, go home and make it red. No, go home and and then you're constantly, you, you have to be compensated at least for the sale of a story after they've met with you twice. And then if you're lucky, you get to go to script where they send you home to work on it and turn it into complete with dialogue and business and all that stuff. And then you turn it in and get notes that sometimes are heartbreaking, that the things that you thought were the best part they don't want and the things that you didn't think were any good they want to amplify. And then you get paid for that. And then it's sort of like the last hole on a miniature golf course. You reach down to get your ball and it's lost in the system, the network of that long serpentine trip back to the office for the striped ball. Once you have finished your drafts of the script, Only then does the staff begin to dismantle it and turn it into something that it doesn't look or sound anything like what you turned in, which is often the case. And But then you end up hearing from people saying, how come you put in that scene or why don't you have them say this? And you have to explain that it often gets very rewritten for a variety of reasons. One is that they're much more attuned to how the characters talk. Another is like on sliders, every season there would be a dictum coming down from the network saying, we want the stories to be like this. And so one season, it would be futuristic. Another one, they would say, let's essentially rip off current sci-fi films and adapt them to our show. So you wouldn't go in with something gothic horror. You would go in with something that was like what people were used to seeing. And the fans would get upset and say, I don't understand. It was better last season. Why did they have switched to these stories? But you're dealing with politics and committees and writing itself is a solitary job. But if you expect to make money at it, you have to please people above you. And then you deal with the egos of the actors. And if it happens to be pouring that day so much for the frisbee scene and you know it paid well and I, I wish i had done more of it but it really was getting very insular and of course once you get past 35 or 40 they're looking to see who's coming out of film school that we can snap up for a pittance so i you know i got to writing books where no one can say no make this longer or throw that chapter on also did voice work for radio and for some Charlie Brown specials and animation. Freelance some articles for The Hollywood Reporter. I'm currently, this is a really strange but gratifying task, I'm currently editing the the letters that my father wrote to my mother during World War II 
from overseas because he wrote her essentially every day for two years lengthy letters that really conjure up the period. There's little movie reviews of movies that he saw at the camp, current songs. I don't I don't think this is any good. I don't know how could it be on the hit parade? And then of course, you know, fighting the Nazis and missing my mom and my sister and I've shown some to people who aren't in our family and they agree that it's really worth putting this together because I grew up taking for granted that everyone's dad was in World War II, but now as the greatest generation six feet under now People will say, wow, your dad was, you know, it's like saying your dad was at Antietam and Appomattox. That's so, so I come to look at his letters as like those diaries from Civil War soldiers that just happened to be recording these things, but we're grateful they survived. That's what I'm in the midst of right now. That and also the film adaptation of my Groucho book, Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House which is a surreal experience because the book itself isn't the biography of Groucho. It's the story of those last years when I got to work inside his house. So it's basically three main people, Groucho, the aging legend, and Steve, this impressionable kid, 20 years old, and then Erin Fleming, the controversial woman, a part-time actress who came to take over Groucho's life and run the household. So I will, it hasn't been cast yet, but I will have to see someone on the big screen playing Steve at 20 with a full head of hair and mutton chops and mustache. And that's going to be very strange to see someone playing me. Let's go back in time. Okay, and- we'll get a harp glissando and a ripple dissolve. I remember back. Let's <laughs> Let's adapt uh, Back to the Future to this. Okay. And and then go from there. So Groucho Marx, this is somebody who, you were a big Groucho Marx fan. I mean, I think I knew about elements of Marx Brothers movies and Groucho when I was a little kid. And as a matter of fact, I had an Uncle Joe who was balding and had glasses, a mustache, and smoked a cigar and a good sense of humor and wiggled his eyebrows. So when I finally discovered The real Groucho was like, oh, he's just like Uncle Joe. I think it was in high school that my interest really took off when I started catching the Paramount films on television, and they showed Night at the Opera in two sections during lunch period at Taft High School. It sort of became an obsession. I mean, all of my friends had that in common. They were all into the Marx Brothers and, of course, W.C. Fields and Marlon and Hardy, but really the Marx Brothers. And we would learn the lines from the movies and, and use them in conversation. And I thought, boy, I would love to meet Groucho Marx, but I know he's old and in kind of frail health, and so the chances of that were pretty minimal. I did see his one-man show in late 72 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles and was kind of heartbroken at how old and frail he'd gotten because the press had protected him in a sense by saying, you know, good old Groucho at 82, just as sharp as ever, just as funny as ever. And then this old man shuffled out to the podium and read off of cards, index cards. On the other hand, it was such a thrill to see him 
in this cavernous space from the back of the Dorothy Chandler that I just applauded so hard my hands were stinging the next day. And in the parking lot of the Dorothy Chandler, I recognized Zeppo Marx, the fourth brother, the straight man who was in their early films. And I thought, well, if I can't meet Groucho, I can at least meet one of the Marx brothers. And I went over and I said, excuse me, Mr. Marx, I just wanted to let you know how much I've enjoyed your film. And he said, you weren't enjoying me. You were enjoying my brothers. And I thought, well, that was very pleasant. Uh, Gee, I'm so glad I went out of my way to compliment him. I had no way of knowing that two years later, I would be working for his brother inside his house and that I would have dinner with Zeppo and that Zeppo would take a liking to my girlfriend at the time and actually ask her out after we broke up. I mean, the quantum leap <laughs> from this dismissive, you weren't enjoying me, you were enjoying my brothers, and the Dorothy Chandler. And then when my friend Linda and I broke, I'd taken her there for dinner one night, and he found her kind of enchanting. And he said, you know, you and Linda ought to come visit me in Palm Springs sometime. And I said, I don't know. I was there when I was like eight, and it was sweltering. And he said, well, when were you there? During the summer? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you know, Steve, it's cold in Alaska during the winter, too. <laughs> so she and I broke up. And I had a couple pictures I wanted him to sign. So I sent it to him in Palm Springs with a cover letter saying, do you have any advice for the love, Lauren? I know you've been around the block a few times. And instead, he calls me up, Steve Zeppo Marx. I hope this isn't a bad time. No, I got your letter and I got the photos. God, I was good looking back then. Uh, anyway, listen, do you think that Linda would go out with me? And I thought, what? He said, you know, and I don't want to step on your toes. And if this is at all uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, this is really strange. And I said, well, I think, you know, she kind of got a kick out of you. But uh, let me ask her, because I would never want to do anything that would upset you. You understand that? Yes. Okay. So I asked Linda, and she got a kick out of it, too. And they went out once. They went to dinner in San Diego and then to a high-ally game in Tijuana. I guess that was Zeppo's standard first date. That's his move, the Zeppo move. <laughs> dinner and the high-ally game. And I saw him afterwards, and he said, I want you to know, Steve, she was very nice, but I didn't even kiss her goodnight. I want you to know that. And uh, she's very sweet, but uh, all she did was talk about herself. And then I saw her on campus, and I said, so how was your date with Zeppo? And she said, he's very nice, but all he did was talk about himself. And I thought, this is really strange. And then after that, at parties that Zeppo was at, at Groucho's, he'd say, oh, and this is Steve. He and I dated the same girl, but he got further with her than I did. That was like my full introduction if Linda really wanted to stick it to you, she would have slept with him, though. Because, oh, you you met a Mark's brother. I slept with one. <laughs> well, yeah, which is more than I did. I slept at the home of one, but not with him. <laughs> Getting back to connecting with Groucho, Mark's brother's second film, Animal Crackers, based on the Broadway show of the same name, was made at Paramount in 1930. In the late 50s, Universal bought Paramount's old film library, all of their pre-1948 films. And then they packaged those for TV where it would say, uh, MCA TV release. And it always bugged me. I wanted to go up to the TV and add an N and say it's an MCA, uh, MCA. Anyway, 
Crackers was in the package that they bought, but because the rights had expired and reverted back to the composers and writers of the stage play, they didn't have the right to re-release it or uh, syndicate it to TV station. It was basically a clerical error on Paramount's part. It just slipped through, and instead of becoming public domain or instead of being renewed the way the contract had been written, it now was in the hands of George Kaufman's estate and Maury Riskind and Harry Ruby. And Universal certainly didn't think it was worth spending money on an old black and white movie that no one's going to want to see. And of course, my friends are thinking, we're dying. This is the great missing link. And they only made a dozen movies. And this is the one with Hooray for Captain Spaulding. And I shot an elephant in my pajamas. And it's been unseen for decades. And they thought, no, we're focusing on Downhill Racer and uh, Airport 75 and the important film. So I started a committee and a petition drive at UCLA to put pressure on Universal to re-release the film. And I got in touch with Erin Fleming, who was this woman that really was the guardian of the gate. And she arranged for Groucho to come to campus. And we sat together and talked to newsmen as hundreds of UCLA students crowded around trying to hear his whispery voice. I said, Groucho, I am very happy to be meeting you after all this time. And he said, well, you should be. <laughs> and uh, Aaron said, this is Steve Stolyer. He's the one trying to get Animal Crackers re-released. And Groucho said, well, did you get it? And I said, no, but I'm working on it. And he said, well, you better or I'll fire you. And I said, I didn't even realize I was working for you. How much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. <laughs> and we were off and running. And I, I was just pinching myself that I'm sitting here talking to my hero, answering questions from the press. And then Universal relented and spent the money to untangle the legal problem and released it in New York and at the UA Westwood Theater. And it's like, here, we'll humor you. We'll put it out here and then please leave us alone. And it broke the box office record that had been set by the French Connection several years earlier. And it was very gratifying for me to be in Westwood and see the line all the way down the block of college kids waiting to see Animal Crackers. Because I knew it wasn't just my friends and me. I knew it was anyone interested in Marx Brothers has wanted to see this movie for decades. And now, you know, we live at a time of TCM and digital streaming and all that. And you mention a movie, and by the time you finish it, someone's looking at it on their iPhone. This was before all of that. You saw old movies by reading the TV guide and circling the ones you wanted to try to stay up past Carson and past Tom Snyder into the netherworld of Cal Worthington car commercials. And then you'd finally see it. Or there would be a couple of revival houses that would show old movies, but you certainly couldn't pick and choose what you wanted to see and when. So it was a very laborious process of checking off even the dozen Marx Brothers movies. Oh, okay, I finally saw Coconuts, finally saw Night in Casablanca, but no one had seen Animal Crackers, and they finally did. So after the film came out, I had a couple of summer jobs fall through in 74 for which I remain eternally grateful because with my back against the wall and my dad saying, I don't want you sitting on your fanny the whole summer. I want you to go get a job. 
there's a help wanted sign at the Firestone Tires place. See if they, or go to Taco Bell. And I thought, Dad, I didn't go to college. Anyway, so I thought I have nothing to lose. And I called Aaron and I said, is there anything at all that you think I might maybe sort of could? And she said, well, actually, I used to be Groucho's secretary but now I'm his manager and we need someone to take care of all the fan mail, which has just been getting out of hand. And we need someone who really knows their Marx Brothers to organize all of Groucho's memorabilia to be donated to the Smithsonian after he's gone. And in my mind's eye, it's like a Tex Avery cartoon where she's still talking on the phone while I'm standing at the front door pressing (laughs) the doorbell. And like, furthermore, you're all packed. You're, yeah, you're standing it. there with two suitcases. I'm ready to start. Let's right. I'm here. Yeah. I am. <laughs> and I actually, I thought that I'd probably be working at some office building on Wilshire, you know, Groucho Marx Productions or something. And I'd catch glimpses of him when he'd come in to sign checks or something. And Aaron said, "Oh no, dear, you'll have your own room to use as an office, and you can make your own hours." And I thought, then they're giving me money to do this, to go to Groucho's house inside, have lunch with them. There was, you know, it was very egalitarian. There wasn't a sense that the help should eat in the kitchen. So I would sit at the lunch table and sometimes it was just Groucho and me or Groucho and a nurse and me or Groucho and Aaron and me or, you know, any number of guests from George Burns to Steve Allen to Jack Lemmon. And it was so great meeting these people in the comfort of someone's home because you aren't just some fan going, oh, I, you were really funny in this movie and will you sign this? Because they figured if you're inside Groucho's house, they may not know who I am. I could be his grandson or something like that. But they figured I belonged there. So there was no attitude, no please leave me alone. And so I got to spend quality time with this staggering array of people who had been in vaudeville and radio and film and television, writers, directors, comedians, actors, Mae West, Bob Hope. I mean, it's just an extraordinary experience. Plus, getting to know my hero and hear his stories from his, you know, 85 plus years. He was born in 1890. So he was literally a Victorian. He was 10 years old at the turn turn of the century. I asked him once how far back he remembered. And he said, I guess the Spanish-American War, which was 1898. And because the Marx Brothers started out as singers before they got into comedy, Groucho actually sang as a solo at the age of 15 or 16 at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York on a bill that included Enrico Caruso, and it was to raise money for the victims of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Wow. So I'm with this living history, someone, I mean, in addition to the fact that it was Groucho Marx himself, my idol, he was someone whose firsthand memories went back to the 19th century, and also someone who knew on a personal basis George Gershwin and W.C. Fields and James Thurber and all of these legendary people that you think of existing in two dimensions or black and white. He he was friends with them. He hung out with them. It was a real best of times thing. And then the worst of times was getting close to my hero as he's fading out and getting hazier and also trying to stay on the good side of Aaron Fleming, 
who had a mercurial personality and was later diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. So you basically had a frail old man at the mercy of a volatile young woman who wasn't entirely there. It was a lot for me to handle at 20 because I had never dealt with anyone that had you know, a really difficult personality. There wasn't any yelling and screaming in my family when we were growing up. And all of a sudden, there's the slamming of doors and there's this unleashing cussing, having just shit fits. Also, the things that you thought would infuriate her, she would laugh off. And then there'd be something you thought was completely innocuous. And she would fly into a rage and scream and throw things. But, you know, my priority was Groucho. And frankly, I didn't want to miss out on any of this ride, even if some of it was rugged. Other people have said, I couldn't have stood putting up with her the way you did for three years, or why didn't you just leave? And it's like, well, A, I didn't want to miss anything. I'm always the last to leave at a party. Robert Benchley wrote a whole thing about toddling. He said, I envy people who can be at a party and say, well, I guess it's time for me to be toddling, and then they leave. Because he says he can never guess that he'll be toddling. He can Once he gets to toddling, he's fine. But he can never guess that he'll be toddling. So, so that was sort of me. And I didn't want to miss out, even if it was very stressful at times. Plus, whatever I could provide as any kind of buffer looking out for Groucho's best interest. I mean, it was a sort of conspiratorial household where the nurses and cooks and housekeepers and I would talk about what's best for Groucho and how to circumnavigate Aaron to achieve those things. So I stayed in until the end, but I mean, I wouldn't have traded any of it for the world. You know, I knew when it was happening that it was a landmark event in my life. And another thing I was really grateful for, I don't know if you've had the experience of meeting someone when you're young and then later in life you learn about them and you think, oh, I wish I could have appreciated them. I would have asked them about this and that. In my case, I was such a fanatic that as I would meet people, my the Rolodex in my brain would flip to their card and it's like, oh, okay, Nat Perrin, you co-wrote Monkey Business and Duck Soup. You created the Adams Family. You were the guy that signs his letters, the Deacon and the Groucho letters. So I knew who they were and could really appreciate it instead of thinking, you know, I was too young at the time. I didn't know. I'd never heard of any of that. And Groucho appreciated the fact that I was a kindred spirit. He once called me into his, his room and he said, here's $20. Go down to Tower Records and get me some records. You know what I like. And I was so flattered that he realized that I knew what he, and he said, and I, and I want change too (laughs) (laughs) i brought back two albums one of them was fred astaire singing irving berlin songs and the other was a harpo appearance on a radio show and i got to see him dancing with one of his nurses to the fred astaire album and i thought this is really cool and and there were just a thousand moments like that and i put i hope the best of them, and then some in, in raised eyebrow. The book. The book. The amazing stories go with Bob Hope or Jack Lemmon or Mae West or George Burns. Like, any stories you could share? Sure. I mean, Bur- this was at a time, an interesting time in Burns's life because it was after Gracie was gone, but it was before the Sunshine Boys. 
So he wasn't hot, but being a fan of vintage comedy, I was able to fully appreciate that this was half of Burns and Allen. So I was kind of nervous about meeting him. And But he came to lunch and the doorbell rang and I opened it and he said, Hi, you want to live a long time? Become an actor. You'll live to be an old man like Groucho and me. Okay, let's eat. And off he shuffled into the dining room. It was remarkable listening to them talk because they were talking about vaudeville and they talk about, wasn't the, was it the, the theater manager at, at BF Keith's theater in Chicago and Chico was banging the dog? No, you're thinking of the Orpheum Theater in Seattle. No, I'm sure it was Chicago. And it's like, it was like <laughs> the Sunshine Boys, except that didn't exist yet. And then after lunch, Burns took out a cigar and pushed it in the holder and was about to light it up. And he said, I never smoke expensive cigars. All I care about is if it fits the hole. Now, Milton Burrow, he pays $2 for his cigars. If I paid that much, I'd go to bed with it before I smoked it. And then he lit up his cigar. Groucho had given up cigars for his health, and I was grateful because I can't stand the smell of them. So his trademark cigar wasn't part of my experience, but many of his friends did continue to smoke. I want to keep asking you about these people because I'm I'm actually I'm actually fascinated by how you go in and out of the voices. Oh. I don't want you to I don't want you to think I didn't notice oh, well, and underappreciated the well, impressions. Something, something else that I did, <laughs> thank you. In addition to having written the book, I did the audio book and I do all the voices on it. It, it really it's, it just stems from the fact that when I tell a story, I will slip into the voice to add to it. It isn't like an effort on my part. And as a matter of fact, when we were recording the audiobook, the engineer was baffled that I could shift from one voice to another because he said, usually when people do multiple voices, they do all of one so they can focus on it and then all of another and then they have to edit it together. But I would just shift from saying and then Groucho said, what are you talking about? And George Burns said, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Bob Hope came by Groucho's 85th birthday party in 1975 and he was on his way to a testimonial dinner to raise money for St. Jude's for Danny Tom in honor of Danny Thomas and he came in and Groucho introduced him he said here is a man who's made me laugh and Bob Hope said oh Groucho you know you don't have to say that and Groucho said if if you weren't here I wouldn't say it <laughs> and Pope looked exasperated and said, it's been like this for 40 years. I can never top this guy. And then I thought he was going to talk about Groucho, but instead he used us to try out his Danny Thomas material that he was on his way to. So here he is in Groucho's living room on Groucho's 85th birthday saying, hey, how about that Danny Thomas? Isn't he something? You know, he's so religious. He has stained glass bifocals. <laughs> And I thought, this is it's like, you know, being at a Bob Hope NBC special, no cue cards. But it was still was ultra cool to have him right in front of us as we're sitting on the floor of the living room and he's leaning against the piano, talking about Groucho and testing his Danny Thomas stuff. Mae West. I got to hear this. You know, <laughs> Groucho was kind of indifferent to uh, having Mae West come over. I mean, he you know, he was not starstruck by people who were his peers, although he, you know, there were a number of people he admired, but he wasn't thinking, gosh, Mae West is coming over. Aaron was very nervous, and she said, I want you to be sure you're on your best behavior, Groucho, 
And he said, well, I'm always on my best behavior. Now, it's sort of like telling a mischievous kid, whatever you do, don't touch where it says wet paint. <laughs> telling him to behave himself was the worst thing she could do. Two things to know about Mae West. One is she and W.C. Fields hated themselves when they were making My Little Chickadee in 1940 and got to the point where they wouldn't even talk to each other except when they were filming scenes. And if they had something to tell each other, they would write down the note and have someone take it to the dressing room because they didn't want to have. So they hated each other. The other is that in the 20s, Mae West had been jailed briefly in New York because they found her play Sex indecent. Imagine a play called Sex in the 1920s. So the first thing Groucho says to her when she comes through the door is, what do you hear from Bill Fields? <laughs> and she said, in your dreams, Groucho, in your dreams. And then a few minutes later, he said, didn't I throw you in the pokey once? And she said, it's true, Groucho, but I always managed to wriggle out of situations like that. And she wiggled her hips. And it was just surreal watching, really, the king and queen of Paramount Comedy in the 30s. And Aaron is dying because, of course, the two things she wanted Groucho to be sure not to bring up were the things he brought up. Of course. That night, Harpo's son, Bill Marks, who was a very skilled pianist and composer was at the piano and they tried to prevail upon Mae West to sing and she said oh, I don't have my records here that have the backing I can't really but I can do some reciting so she stood at the piano with one hand on the piano and one on her hip and Bill Mark started playing a honky-tonk version of Frankie and Johnny which was perfect dun, 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 and she started reciting a poem called Pleasure Man, which was a play in a book that she had written. And it was this bawdy story about this promiscuous woman. So here is Mae. She was 4'11", without shoes on, by the way. Very, She was a tiny woman that had a huge presence on screen. And she's reciting while Harpo's son is playing Frankie and Johnny and Groucho and the others and I are watching this tableau unfold just for us in Groucho's living room. I had a, a book that she wrote and she signed it sincerely and she hyphenates, she separated the sin from the seerly. That was how <laughs> she tended to write autographs. Just an extraordinary rendezvous under extraordinary circumstances. Sounds like you've had Quite a life. And like, if you had just done that, I'd been like, oh, that's quite a life. Yeah. And then you went on to just an amazing career after that. I mean, just on, you know, completely separate. It's just amazing what all the things that you've done and your entire repertoire. Well, thanks. But the book, which is called, just so everyone has it again, Raised Eyebrows, My Years Inside Groucho's House by Steve Stolier. You can get the Kindle or the audio book on Amazon with no problem. You can also get the book itself, but if you want to get one and have me sign it or inscribe it to you or personalize it somehow, you can order it for the cover price from my website, which is Steve Stolier, S-T-O-L-I-A-R dot com. And I would be happy to sign a copy and send it out to you. Or you can deal with Amazon, making sure that it is on Amazon, not along the Amazon, because a lot of people <laughs> ended up flying down to the rainforest looking for my book and were very disappointed. So 
my aunt did that, and she she's still mad at me. She's I'm like you're not yeah, gonna believe it. That's where the word antics comes from. Is your aunt going down? <laughs> Oh, you were hilarious. I have had an interesting life. Sometimes I need to be reminded of it because, you know, we're only looking at the highlights. I've I've had tragedy and depression and running out of money and all sorts of stuff like that. So I haven't just been skipping through the flowers and lighting cigars with $100 bills. But really, all in all, it, it continues to be an interesting life. Actually, I'm really excited about the letters thing because I have one letter from my grandpa that he wrote to his wife during, uh, I think it was uh, probably World War II. And like the pictures, like everything about that time is just so interesting. I have a lot of snapshots that he took too. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to that's gonna be awesome. I'm excited for, for your one movie. More story? I've got a time for what you no, I got I'm gonna let me keep let me keep it rolling. Well here's an, <laughs> an interesting full circle thing. My dad went to a Bob Hope USO show in Darmstadt, Germany in nineteen forty-five, and he got to sit about ten feet from the stage, and he had his dog Nancy in his arms watching the show. At one point a tap dancer came out and she was tap dancing. And as she was working up to the finish, the taps were just rat-a-tat like a machine gun. So Nancy jumped out of my dad's arms and ran across the stage and the tap dancer stopped dancing because she was afraid she was going to get bitten. And then dad had to run over and grab Nancy and sit back. So then Hope came out to the microphone and he said, you better not let Crosby see that dog or he's going to throw a saddle over her because Crosby was buying up a lot of racehorses at the time. So, and dad tells the story in, in the letters and he had told it to me, you know, in life, but it was cool reading, hey, look what happened this afternoon. And he also had pictures that he took of Hope and other met Jerry Colonna and got a picture of him. So that'll go in the book. Ah, it must have been about 1990. Dick Cavett and I went to Bob Hope's house in Toluca Lake to do an interview for one of Cavett's shows. And during, a, they were like redoing the lighting and changing the tape cartridges. And Hope was just walking around with his hands in his pockets whistling. And I told him that story. I said, in World War II in Germany, my dad went to this and the dog ran on stage and you said you better grab him before crying. And Hope chuckled and said, is that what I said? And And I thought, this is so surreal. I've gone full circle. My dad had this experience in 1945 and in 1990, I'm telling it to the man that was on the stage. So... Yes, it's That's great. strange Twilight Zone comedy thing. I love it. Cut print. Cut print. Well, I got, I got one, one, one favor to ask. You don't have to do it, but if you want to. Since uh, you're so good at the impressions. Uh-oh. Could we say, <laughs> well, I'm excited about your book. Excited about your thing. I'll put it all in the show notes. Anyone's listening, I highly recommend. Thank you. All this. Since you're so good with the voices, and you happened to mention this quote earlier, and I, I had written it down. Can you do the uh, shot an elephant in my pajamas in the Groucho voice? <laughs> One morning, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Often misquoted <laughs> as I'll never know, but it's, I don't know. Yes, that's from Animal Crackers from 20, 1928 on Broadway, 1930 on the big screen, and 1974 reissued because of Steve Stoller's Committee for the Re-Release of Animal Crackers. And with that, we thank you and say good night. I appreciate you spending time with me. Great stories. Loved them all. I bid you an odd fondue. I bid you goodbye.
All right, how awesome was that? Steve Stolier, ladies and gentlemen. How cool were those stories? Can you imagine to be sitting there at Groucho Marx's house with all these legendary people coming and going? Amazing. Get his book. Go to stevestolier.com. He'll sign it and send it off to you. I have my own signed copy. I'll have you know. So I highly recommend it. But can you believe it? We're nearing the end of yet another episode. Episode 57 has come and is almost over, but it's not over yet. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's time for another trending hashtag from the world of Hashtag Roundup. That's right. We're making Twitter fun again at Hashtag Roundup on Twitter. And you can also download our free Hashtag Roundup app. That's right. I said free. We play Hashtag Games all day, every day. And if you play along, one day one of your tweets may show up on an episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag, inspired by our guest Steve, who saved the movie Animal Crackers. Steve wrote a book, so we're going to do the hashtag, hashtag Animal Books. It's a, it has nothing to do with the movie Animal Crackers, and it has nothing specifically to do with Steve's book. But it has the word animal, and it has the word book. So, boom, that's what happens when you mash things together. You get something completely new. Hashtag animal books. It's a mashup game. You take a book, and you kind of give it an animal spin. This hashtag game was brought to you by our friends at Friday Fondue, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. All right, you ready? Here are some amazing hashtag animal books. A farewell to farms, for whom the cowbell tolls. The portrait of a lady, and the tramp, Annie of Green Gibbons, the great Goatsby. Arr. That that was not a goat. Anyway, interview with the vampire bat, the girl with the Komodo dragon tattoo. These are some amazing hashtag animal books, the best in animal book mashups. The great Batsby, the apes of wrath. Are you there, God? It's me, Mongoose. Harry Popper, and let's wrap it all up with James and the Giant Leech. Oh, these are some great hashtag animal books brought to you by Friday Fondue on Hashtag Roundup. As always, all the tweeters of the tweets that I read will be retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter and will be listed in the show notes. Give them some love and retweet the tweeters. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We're at the end of episode 57. Thank you once again to my guest, Steve Stolier. Thanks to all of you. And I can't wait to see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.